0: Welcome to the Gather Houston podcast. We are a Christian community practicing the way of Jesus in all parts of life and for the good of all people. Thank you for joining us today. Well, today we are starting a new uh, conversation. We just wrapped up a few weeks in a row on our gospel proclamation and uh, what it means to live as a people who are created, loved, rescued, forgiven, and free. I hope some of you have it memorized. And uh, I, I just wanted to start today by telling you thank you. It means so much to me that I get to teach on these ideas And that I get to um, be honest about them and about about what I actually think about them. And I get to be myself. That's not true of every pastor uh, at every church. And so I just, I really appreciate you. And so I wanted to tell you, thank you. And now, uh, for the next few weeks, we're going to walk through the book of Philippians together. And uh, I like alternating between talking through these kind of ideas, like our identity is created, loved, rescued, forgiven, and free. And then going back to just walking through a book of the Bible, to kind of root ourselves in a book of the Bible. And there are four chapters in Philippians, so we're going to take four weeks and look at it. Uh, I'm really excited about who we have teaching this week, uh, these uh, four weeks. It's not all just going to be me, and I think you're really going to love it. So before we get into it today, to Philippians chapter 1, I thought I'd give you a little bit of context on the book of Philippians. I know you were just sitting at home on Thursday thinking, what is the context on Philippians? What was going on there? So I thought I'd fill you in. Uh, The Apostle Paul uh, wrote the book of Philippians to the church in Philippi, and uh, he wrote this letter uh, from prison. So the church in Philippi was the first uh, church, the first Jesus following community that Paul helped to start in Eastern Europe. And um, Paul's in prison and he receives a gift from this church while he's in prison. A representative from the church comes to visit him, brings a gift from the church. And then Paul writes this letter kind of as a thank you back to them. And um, and so he, he writes this letter back to this church that he helped to start. So he knows these people. Uh, and then Philippi was a, uh, it's a Roman colony uh, that was largely known for being uh, really patriotic. It was known for its nationalism uh, and patriotism. It had a lot of retired Roman soldiers, a lot of former politicians who lived in Philippi. So Paul, and the church that Paul helped to start there, the church in Philippi, the Philippians, uh, they, they faced a lot of um, struggle. There was a lot of persecution, especially when they got started, because in this colony, it was very um, controversial to say that Jesus is Lord, that not a political figure or someone you were backing uh, was Lord, but Jesus was Lord. Um, maybe that sounds familiar to you a little bit, that it's not a political figure that we should be following, but Jesus? Uh, Different than some of Paul's other New Testament writing, there's not a single idea or like one single thesis or through line in the book of Philippians. Some of Paul's other writings, it's like, oh, there's this theme. And it is really clear. And he gives a thesis statement in the first chapter of the book. That doesn't happen in Philippians. He's writing this letter from prison. He's writing it as a thank you, as an encouragement to people he really knows. It's super personal. And so the book, kind of the letter, kind of acts as these series of personal anecdotes that center around one poem in Philippians chapter 2 that you'll hear about next week. But just kind of the general idea and really the idea of the poem is that our lives Uh, in our lives, we can embody the life of Jesus, that that we can embody the way of Jesus, that our lives and the life of Jesus can kind of intertwine in this mysterious and amazing way. We can embody the story of Jesus. Today we'll be in Philippians chapter 1, and here Paul is discussing uh, his own suffering while he's in prison uh, and the hope that he has. So it's suffering and it's hope. And this is what Paul says from prison in Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12. He says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of my brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Verse 18 Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers, in God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm going to go on living in the body, this will be fruitful labor, labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. He said, what do I choose, life or death? I do not know. So there's some phrases I want to point out in this uh, first half of of this passage here. Paul says, what has happened to me has advanced the gospel. Paul says, I am in chains for Christ. And what has happened will turn out for my deliverance. And these phrases on their own can be used to justify this idea called redemptive suffering. Maybe that's a new idea. Maybe that sounds familiar to you. Clearly, Paul is suffering. He's in prison. He's not doing well. I mean, honestly, if you read through this whole passage, it's a little uh, dramatic. It's like to, to live as Christ and to die as gain, and dying would be fine with me, and I don't know which one I'll choose. Maybe I'll live, maybe I'll die. He's clearly suffering, but sometimes in some religious spaces, we hear ideas about our suffering actually turning out for our good or for someone else's good. It usually includes, uh, these, this idea of redemptive suffering usually includes uh, the diminishing of someone's struggle. It includes avoidance. It might even include a phrase like, if one person is saved, then it was all worth it. Or God will turn your test into a testimony. That's a good one, right? Or everything happens for a reason. Just wait and God will reveal it. Right? This idea of redemptive suffering, it always comes with a good dose of, Of martyr complex, Mark Sandlin says, "Redemptive suffering is ghastly theology. Seldom is suffering redemptive, and if it were, surely humanity would be redeemed by now." Philippians one is good and helpful, not because our suffering is redemptive, but because our suffering is reality. Suffering is reality. There is no way around it. And I think for a lot of us, especially us religious folks, we need to reframe our suffering. And I know this may be hard to hear, but the really hard stuff in your life, the pain, the struggle, your suffering, I don't think it all happens for a reason. I don't think God is leveraging your pain and trauma for some version of good. I don't think God is using suffering Right, Your test might not become a testimony. Right? God doesn't need pain in order to make something beautiful. Right? The suffering might just suck. There might not be a silver lining. It might not turn out for your good. There might not be a secret divine reason that you need to hunt for. Right? And Paul is rooted in the reality of his situation. Right? There is no secret reasoning. There is no good he's looking for. He's just rooted in the reality. He says very clearly here, uh, I might die. Right? There's no avoidance. There's no bypassing. There's no making good out of a bad situation. It's just reality. Paul is rooted in his reality. And I think this is the challenge in our suffering, to plant our feet in reality. Right? Suffering is reality. And we've talked about this framework before, but I think a lot of us either idealize or catastrophize our, uh, our futures, especially in the middle of suffering. So we hit a moment of pain, a moment of hardship, a moment of struggle. And I think some of us idealize. So we're in the middle of this hard thing and we think about our future as entirely better, entirely easier, simpler, perfect, right? We take a everything will be fine approach when things get hard. And then sometimes some of us catastrophize, which is the exact opposite, right? It's not avoidance, it's apocalypse, right? We say uh, there is disaster coming. It doesn't matter if I have no evidence of disaster, disaster is coming. It's all terrible, it's never going to be any better, it's bad and it's getting worse. Maybe you're an idealizer, maybe you're a catastrophizer. Listen, Paul is doing none of that. He's not avoiding his suffering, right? He's doing, he's, this isn't apocalyptic, right? There is no idealizing or catastrophizing. He is rooted in reality because for Paul, suffering is reality. It just is. It may not be for a reason. It may not be redemptive, but suffering is reality, Paul is rooted in reality, but that doesn't mean he isn't hopeful, right? He says very clearly in verse 18, I will continue to rejoice. He is hopeful. And now I think we want passages like this to be about redemptive suffering. And I understand we want our suffering to turn out into something good. I understand that. And I understand what happens when we try to reframe our suffering and that could be helpful. I understand. I get that, right? We want it to be true that our our individual circumstances of pain of trauma, of hardship, that God will redeem those individual things and make those good. I know that that sounds nice, but I don't think that's the point. And what we often see as redemptive suffering, I think, is actually hard-fought hope. Right? This isn't Paul's first prison stint. This isn't his first time being persecuted. Right? The man has been shipwrecked, beaten, and shackled. He has worked and worked and worked and been persecuted and persecuted and persecuted. And now he has a hard-fought hope. And I don't think Paul needs to believe that this particular imprisonment, this individual circumstance, will be turned around into something good. But I think because Paul has been through enough been through enough life, been through enough difficulty, been through enough suffering, I think Paul knows that none of that will last forever. That's hard-fought hope. It's hope built on resilience, not avoidance. Hard-fought hope is hope built on resilience, not avoidance. And it's the kind of hope that we are called to, right? Not shifting blame or responsibility to God by expecting God to turn our individual circumstances of pain, trauma, suffering, and hardship, turning those individual things into something good, Listen, your, your medical diagnosis, as hard as it is, might not turn into something good. Your divorce might not be something good. It just can be really hard. right? Your, your trauma might not be used for good. But if you plant your feet in reality, you can build a hope on resilience that says, I have been through difficulty before. This won't last forever. That's hard-fought hope, hope built on resilience, not avoidance. Over the last couple of weeks, I've been participating in this daily practice through a group called OnSite, and every day is a reflection on a different characteristic, a different trait of emotional health. And One of the practices I was led through uh, was to make a list of as many hardships as I could think of, as I could remember that I have been through, as many things, as many trials, as many moments of suffering and pain that I have walked through. They suggested listing 20, which I know sounds like a lot, but once you get started, I promise you have 20. And then after you make that first list of everything in your life that you've been through, then you make a corresponding list right next to it of what it took to get through each of those things. What are the attributes that you displayed to walk through each of those moments of difficulty? So I wrote down things like patience, fortitude, vulnerability, kindness, determination, trusting my gut, the ability to make friends, adaptability. And I finished this simple practice. It didn't take very long. And then this instructor on a screen that I don't know, I felt like they were looking right into my soul. And they said, read over those traits one more time. So I did because I'm a good student. And this instructor said, those are yours. You have everything you need to overcome your next moment of pain and difficulty. Those are yours. You have everything you need to overcome your next moment of pain and difficulty. And for me, it just gave me permission to hope. Right? Life can be good, not because it's always easy, but because when it's not, I know I can get through it. I have everything I need, right? This is the kind of hard fought hope that Paul is able to have and talk about in Philippians one. He is suffering. He's not avoiding it, but it doesn't have to be redemptive in order for him to be hopeful, right? He has hope that's built on resilience, not avoidance. So for you, how, how do you feel about redemptive suffering? Do you need God to be redeeming your pain and suffering? Now, listen, I just want to be clear. I do think God is present with you. I think you can find beauty and goodness in the middle of really difficult times, but I don't think God is leveraging or using your suffering. I don't think there's a reason that you need to hunt for. But are you a person who's kind of needed a divine reason? You've needed a silver lining? And then in your moments of hardship, of suffering, are you able to plant your feet in reality? Right, no avoidance, no, ide- no idealization, no catastrophizing, which is kind of a made-up word, by the way, I know. But are you able to plant your feet in reality, that you say, I can look head-on to the situation I'm facing? And then what does hard-fought hope look like for you? Right, do you believe you are resilient? That's probably where it starts. Do you know that you are resilient? Listen, hear me today. You have everything you need to overcome your next moment of pain and hardship. You have everything you need to overcome your present moment of pain and hardship. You have everything you need. Listen, you are resilient. You are. And maybe for you, hard-fought hope just looks like uh, acknowledging that. To say, you know, I have been through a lot. And I have all the attributes, all the traits. I have everything I need. Listen, I know that life can be really, really hard. I don't want to diminish your suffering. Suffering is a reality. It's how and why our stories intertwine with the life of Jesus. We suffer. But instead of expecting God to give us a divine reason we plant our feet in reality, and we build our hope on resilience, not avoidance. Uh, the, the first week of Advent last year, I, I preached a sermon on being in touch with reality and having hope. Listen, the Bible has consistent themes, okay? Uh, and I said that I wanted our hope mantra as a community to be, this is hard, but it's not going to last forever. This is hard, but it's not going to last forever. You may remember that And then the very next week, right after I told you all that that's what we were supposed to say, uh, myself and then Ellis and then Katie all got COVID for the first time and we were really sick. And uh, I was really regretting telling everyone that when life is hard, we should just say, this is hard, but it's not going to last forever. It was definitely uh, one of those times where my sermon came back to bite me almost immediately. And then we had a newborn and babies are sweet, but they can be really hard. And we've had some real church uh, struggles this year with our finances, with our building. And we just kept saying in our house, this is hard, but it's not going to last forever. And sometimes I said it like I believed it, and sometimes I said it like it was uh, a total lie. (laughs) But I just kept saying it. This is hard, but it's not going to last forever. And I've been walking with you all this year, and... Uh, you guys have been going through some really hard stuff. Hard relationship stuff, grief, trauma, jobs, finances. And we've been saying to each other, me and you, all year long, this is hard, but it's not going to last forever. And it kind of feels like we might just be slowly convincing each other that that's actually true. And listen, listen, None of that suffering that I have had, big or small, that you have had this year, none of that suffering has been redemptive. None of your suffering was secretly good. There's no divine reason you need to hunt for. It didn't turn out to be a good thing. We didn't have to look for a silver lining. It was just suffering. It was just reality. But we are still hopeful You can still be hopeful. You are allowed to hope. You are allowed to see a future for yourself that is different and better than your present. Suffering is a reality, but you are allowed to hope, not in spite of your difficulties, but in light of them. We have been through this before. It has been hard before, and it did not last forever. I have watched you build resilience over and over and over again. You have everything you need. Gather, you have a hard-fought hope. So this is my prayer for us today. Feel the grief and sadness that comes with your suffering. Don't avoid it. Don't idealize it. Feel it all. You have survived, and you have occasionally even overcome but you are here and you can hope because you have everything you need. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in Gather, check out our website at gatherhouston.org or visit us on Sunday at 10 a.m.